Bruce Catton, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author, wrote what most consider a masterpiece in a book called A Stillness at Appomattox. That's where the Civil War was ended. In one of the penultimate battles, Catton describes the effect the Union General Philip Sheridan had on a defeated and demoralized group of retreating troops. Catton writes, Sheridan rode out at about 9 o'clock and a few aides were riding with him. Down the road went general, aides, and cavalry horses moving at a walk. After about a mile or so, they came upon a wagon train all in a tangle. Wagons turned every which way, nobody moving. Sheridan sent his major Forsyth trotting on ahead to see what was wrong. And presently, Forsyth came back at a mad gallop. He reported that the army had been routed and was coming back in full retreat. On hearing which, the Teamsters began to swing their horses around, or their wagons around without waiting for orders. Sheridan then, he sprung into action. Sheridan was, was, was the Union's top cavalryman, and he took 50 mounted men, and he decided to go forth into the routed troops, troops to get them turned and going the right way. First, he saw some soldiers along the side, around campfires, eating food and boiling coffee. And he, he, Sheridan shout, shouted to them, Turn back, men. Turn back. Face the other way. He comes, comes along another group of stragglers and says, Face the other way, boys. If I'd been here this morning, this wouldn't have happened, the defeat. You will be in your camps before tonight. Catton goes on to say, Most of the time, however, he did not come to a halt, but kept on at a gallop, swinging his hat in a great arc, now and then pointing toward the south, always calling, turn back, turn back. The effect was electric. One group of coffee boilers who had been stretched at ease around a campfire jumped up with a yell as he went past, kicked their coffee pots over, seized their muskets, and started back toward the battlefield. All along the way, men sprang up and cheered. And by the hundreds, retreating soldiers turned around and followed Sheridan back into the fight. Catton says, they came at last to a ridge where the battalions were at action, dueling at long range. And up ahead on the right of the road, they could see the ranks of the 6th Corps, men standing in line waiting to be used. Sheridan came plowing up through the faint hearts and the skulkers, and his face was as black as midnight, and he was shouting, Turn around, you bleeped, cowardly curs, or I'll cut you down. I don't expect you to fight, but come see men who like to. And he swung his arm in great inclusive gestures toward the Sixth Corps. One veteran said, We were astounded. There we stood, driven four miles back already, quietly waiting for what might be further and immediate disaster. And far in the rear, we heard the stragglers and the hospital bummers and the gunless artillerymen actually cheering as though a battle had been won. We could hardly believe our ears. And then, while the men were looking their questions at one another, out of the front of the line came Sheridan himself. 
still riding at a swinging gallop, and the whole army corps blew up in, wild, in the wildest cheer, and the roar went rocketing along the line as Sheridan rode past brigade after brigade of the toughest veterans in the Army of the Potomac. One man says, such a scene at his presence produced such an emotion as cannot be realized in a century. All outward manifestations as enthusiastic as men are capable of exhibiting, cheers seemed to come from the throats of brass, and caps were thrown to the top of scattering oaks. But beneath and yet superior to these noisy demonstrations, there was in every heart a revulsion of feeling and a pressure of emotion beyond description. No more doubt or chance for doubt existed. He says, we were safe, perfectly and unconditionally safe, and every man knew it. And Sheridan went on to lead this defeated army to victory that day. This series, this series that we're going through called The Armor of God, this series is meant to remind us that we have no reason to retreat. And we have a better leader than little Philip Sheridan. Yes, we fight a formidable foe. This foe does not sleep and commands countless evil ghouls bent on your destruction. There are cosmic powers who hold sway over this dark world. We don't face off against the sons and daughters of Adam, but against the dark and powerful rulers and authorities. These vile, tireless, tireless, violent ghouls, they are coming after you. They are coming after me. They are coming for all of us. That is true. But also, but also, we have a champion. Jesus Christ, who calls us in his word, and in this passage specifically, to stand and fight. And as we stand and fight in the strength that he provides, we can know that we will be perfectly and unconditionally safe. To stand, we must fight. But we must realize we are not fighting alone. Our great champion calls us to fight with the strength of his might. And so each, we, as we examine each element of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, what we see is how to fight with his strength. And today we look at the breastplate of righteousness. We are all soldiers together in the army of Christ. We're a couple of, of battalions of people called to stand and fight the devil. And today we will hear that we are to fight and stand by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. May we put on the breastplate of righteousness and fight the devil as he comes at us. I'm going to read beginning in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to go down to verse 14 starting in verse 10. But we will focus all of our time on the breastplate of righteousness and I read this for context. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And here's our focus for today. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we look at your word. Oh, we need your help. Strengthen us. Inspire us. I pray for the afflicted that you would comfort them. I pray for the comfortable that you would afflict them. In your name we pray. Amen. We must stand as we fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? Three questions. What? Why? And how? What? Why? And how? First, what is the breastplate of righteousness? Now, the breastplate that the, that the, the soldier wore was a thick piece of le leather overlaid with scaled metal. It had two pieces, one to cover the chest in the front and one to cover the back of the soldiers. And these two pieces were kept together by leather straps that went over the top of the shoulders and they were secured at the bottom of the, the breastplate with the belt. Now the breastplate was only worn by the soldier in battle and was used obviously to protect his vital organs. No soldier would want to live through, live to fight, with his chest uncovered. And this is, this is the same for us. Paul calls us to put on the breastplate, which is righteousness. So do you see what this implies? If we're going to be protected from the evil schemes of the devil, we must fundamentally rely on righteousness. To be righteous means to be holy, upright, and moral. So, to stand against the devil, are the scriptures asking us that we, to are, are they telling us that we must be righteous, upright, and moral. Kind of. The pro our problem is, none of us in and of ourselves are righteous, upright, and moral. If we were to make a breastplate of righteousness out of our own good works, it would be as thick as saran wrap. And saran wrap can't even block a Nerf bullet, much less the fiery attacks of our enemy. Our own righteousness is not now and never will be good protection. Paul knew this. And when he wrote Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, one of, the Bible piece, one of the Bible sections he had in his mind was Isaiah chapter 59. The prophet, Isaiah, reported that the Lord saw the evil and the transgression that happened in his people, and he saw it as happening against him. And like a soldier, God sprung into action. Here in Isaiah chapter 59, we see the dreadful scene of God the warrior. Modern people don't like to see God this way, but you read the Old Testament, especially in the prophets and in the Psalms, you see God the warrior. And he's dressed for battle. He's ready to fight. He's ready to throw hands, as the kids say. Isaiah 59, verse, why? We have to ask. 59, verse 12. For our transgressions <coughs> are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God. Spreading oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. 
Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For the truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Not a good scene. What does the Lord do? Well, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him. Now, here's a clue. You don't want to displease the Lord. What did he see? It displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. Why? So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come forth like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. You see this? The Lord is dressed for battle and he's going out to fight against those who are his enemy. Who are his enemies? Those who sin. Sinners. He is fighting against those who sin and work injustice. Those who sin and know they sin. He's dressed for battle. He's coming out against us. He's coming because he's dressed to destroy us. He's dressed to destroy people who transgress with a high hand, with a low hand, with any kind of hand. And this is a very serious personal problem. Not just for me, also for you, but also for all of mankind. You see, our problem is that we have a righteousness problem. You and I and all of us simply, on our own, are not righteous. But here we have a direction by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, that we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. So, do you and I, on our own, have righteousness to put on to protect ourselves from the evil schemes of the devil? No. No. Now, I stopped reading Isaiah chapter 59, verse 19. In verse 20, we get a little bit of a hope. Look back to verse 18. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, and the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, and he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. Here we go. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. There is a hope. There is a hope. A redeemer is promised in Isaiah chapter 59. This redeemer gains possession of something by paying something. The redeemer Isaiah mentions here is none other than our champion, Jesus Christ. He purchased his people, any who are willing to turn from their transgression and sin, by dying in their place. You see, the righteousness, the, righteous, the breastplate of righteous, righteousness that Paul calls us to put on is not the righteousness of our own obedience, of our own tradition-keeping or religiosity, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
You see, the logic of the good news of the gospel of Jesus is inextricably linked to the righteousness of God. Why? Well, he sent his son. Jesus was righteous. He had real merit before God. Jesus had always obeyed in thought and deed. He was moral and upright to every degree. He was worthy to stand before the Holy Father. He was never stained by sin. He was innocent always of every wrong thing. Therefore, Jesus was righteous in and of himself down to his very core. Now contrast him with us. We do not have merit before God. We do not always obey in thought and deed. We are not worthy to stand before a holy father. We are stained by sin. We are guilty of many different kinds of wrongdoings. We are unrighteous in ourselves down to our very core. But he redeemed us by suffering the penalty for our many sins. Jesus was treated as if he was personally guilty for our every sin. Christian, Jesus was treated as if he was personally guilty for your every sin. He was scourged by the Father's wrath for your guilt, for my guilt. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says it this way. For our sake, he, that's God, the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There we go. The righteousness of God. Jesus redeemed us by means of his death. He suffered the penalty for our sins. Think of the injustice here. He's always righteous, without fault, without fail, without flaw, yet on the cross, he was at without escape. And this was always the plan. He knew it. Yet in his excruciating ang- ang- agony, he howled, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he knew why. He knew the plan. But to experience God's wrath and to know the plan are two different things. Why did he do that? So that you and I, Christian, that any who trust Jesus might be declared righteous. That we who believe might be personally declared righteous before God the Father. Friends, we are, Christians, we are and have been declared righteous. It must be this way. We have no righteousness of our own to offer. To stand and to fight effectively against the devil, we must stand on and in his righteousness, armed with his righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. We are commanded to put on this breastplate of righteousness as a protection against the evil one. Now this protection that we enjoy is not make-believe. Righteousness is not just make-believe. It's not as if the Lord said, listen, I've seen all your sins. It's not that big a deal. I understand you're stupid and you're weak. Just go on your way. No, our sins are a big deal. How big of a deal? Well, look what Jesus had to do to pay pay the price of our sins. God the Son was scourged so that 
people like us, unworthy men and women, might be declared the sons and daughters of God. Our sins are a big deal. But Jesus has already died and rose again. The the righteousness we have now is not ours like we've earned it. It's ours because it's been given to us. Do you see the difference? The logic of the gospel is etched onto the very breastplate of righteousness. This is not our righteousness. Notice, righteousness is not a shield that we hold up. Shields get heavy. They're easy to drop if you get hit hard enough. And you might throw them away if you have to run away. Not so the breastplate. It's strapped on. The breastplate of righteousness is strapped on and secured with the belt of truth. There is no greater protection we have against the evil one than being in a right relationship with the Almighty Father, the All-Righteous Father, being righteous in His sight. So any accusation that the devil shouts are not received by the Father. They're only heard by us. His perfect righteousness, friends, if you're a Christian, is now yours. So we must stand. We must stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. That's what it is. Now why is the next question. Why do I need to put on the breastplate of righteousness? It's a good question. We can come at it from two angles. If you are not a Christian, you must trust and receive, trust in Jesus Christ. First, believe you're a sinner, and then trust in Jesus Christ to receive this perfect righteousness because you are not protected against the devil. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you are not protected. But if you are a Christian, you might wonder, now, if I'm declared righteous before God and already have, been, already have his perfect righteousness, why do I have to put it on? Well, at one level, we get this answer in verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. True. Now, the Bible says that those who have this righteousness are declared righteous in Christ, and the word that is often used is justified or justification. This is the divine approval that we enjoy in the, in the courts of heaven. And you might ask, if I'm declared righteous before God and I already have his perfect righteousness, why do I have to put it on? What does it mean? That is a good question. To put on the breastplate of righteousness is to be continually, moment by moment, day by day, aware of and living in the good of your justification before God in Jesus Christ. The devil has many schemes, and I'm going to highlight two of them, two ways he attacks Christians. And he's attacked Christians like this for centuries. See, if you're a Christian, you're declared righteous, but it's very easy, even as a Christian, to not live in the good of that righteousness, to forget that declaration in heaven. Now, Satan, our enemy, he's wily, right? He's not going to come to us probably, possess somebody else, and scare us to death. He's going to be subtle. He's going to be, he's, he, he's going to use his skills, and he's got skills. He's going to use his skills and attack us in many different ways. Here's two. One, he accuses. The other one, he distorts. He accuses us so that we would feel condemned. That's one thing he does. 
He distorts us. He distorts truth so that we might live with distortions of grace. That's the other one. There's a bunch of them, but those are the two I'm going to talk about today. He accuses us. And these accusations of condemnation come to us. Those of us who've been declared righteous. Satan means accuser. And one of his most insidious schemes is to deliver all sorts of accusations against us, not just to make us feel guilty, but to feel condemned. Do you know the difference? The the guilty can be forgiven. The condemned are dead already. So Satan sometimes whispers, sometimes shouts, but he's constantly saying things like this. A real Christian would never, could never struggle with lust like you do. Jeez. Another accusation is this. You should feel worse than you do for that angry outburst. Goodness gracious. Another one is this. You are so so dirty and broken, there's no helping you. You're too far gone. Another one is this. Righteous before God? Ha! You're a fool. You're a complete loser. Another accusation is this. You should love God more and serve him more. You're just not enough. Another one is this. You should just give up. Your love for money, reputation, leisure is greater than your love for God. Accusations like this come from the devil and make us feel condemned. We need to put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect ourselves from these accusations. But the devil comes to us not just to accuse and condemn, he also comes to distort. And one of his favorite topics to distort is grace. The evil one accuses, but he also deceives. He is the father of all lies. And one of his most insidious lies is used in the service of distorting God's gift of grace. So sometimes he whispers, sometimes he shouts, but he's constantly saying distortions like this to us. You can freely disobey. Just ask forgiveness later. It doesn't matter. Adultery isn't that bad. Your spouse has been distant a long time. Another lie. You deserve to get angry. They should respect you more. Another accusation. You really need to be true to what you feel inside, no matter what the Bible says. Another accusation, another distortion. God is love. That means do what you want. Do what feels right. Another distortion. You deserve to get what you want. Always. See, distortions like this come, and the devil wants to distort our understanding of grace. Both, both of these kinds of things are attacks from the evil one. These These are part of his schemes. He's happy to accuse us so that we would feel condemned or distort grace so that we would wander away. See, Satan is smart enough. He's he's happy to use either strategy on us. He knows our weaknesses. Listen, if you're tempted towards self-reproach, he's going to attack you with condemnation and accusations. If you're tempted towards self-confidence or self-righteousness, he's going to attack you with distortions of grace. In both cases, we must strap on the breastplate of righteousness. So, 
We know what the breastplate of righteousness is. It's righteousness only found in Christ, given to us. We know why we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness, because the devil's coming at us to attack us, accusing us, to to condemn us, telling us things that aren't true about grace, to, to, to distort grace. Last question, how do I put on the breastplate of righteousness? Let's think about these accusations that would come, come against those who, who, who struggle more with self-reproach. See, sometimes he comes whispering, sometimes shouting, but saying things like this. A real Christian would never struggle with lust like you did. You should feel worse than you do for that angry outburst. You're so dirty and broken, there's no helping you. You're not righteous. Before God, you're a complete loser. And the list goes on and on. Now, when we hear those things, we can be tempted to say, that is so true, I am guilty. And those, those who struggle with self-reproach go, okay, all right, here's what I'm going to do. All right, those, are, those things are true. Here's what, I'm going to pray more this week. I, I'm going to get up early and I'm going to pray like nobody's business. I'm going to fast also. I'm going to fast maybe for the whole week. I'm going to read the Bible through next month. You know, I should serve people more. I'm going to do that more. Now I'm going to obey better. You know, maybe if I memorize Scripture. No, 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 friend. Those are good things. But doing any of these things, they do not make you righteous before God. The ground of your righteousness is not in how much you pray. It is not in whether you fast or not. It is not in whether you've read the Bible through in January. It's not in the measure of your obedience. These things, doing these things are good, but they do not make you righteous before God. You are righteous before God, not because you read the Bible, pray a lot, or anything like that, but why? Because of Jesus Christ. He and He alone is your righteousness. He is the reason you are righteous before an all-righteous, holy God. And if you hear the accusation of the devil and say, I need to do all these things so that I might be righteous, you need to stop yourself and say, no, I should pray, I should read the Bible, I should serve, I should fast, but those are not the reasons that I have a standing before God. My standing before God is because of Christ and Christ alone. We must stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. The devil's going to come and he's going to try to make you feel guilty. Guess what? You are. We are. All of us. Whenever he comes to me, it's like, that's not even half of it, man. You can't read my mind. If you could, you'd have a lot more to say. Listen, buddy, you got nothing. I am guilty. The point is not that we look at ourselves to try to do better. It's that we look to another who is not guilty. His name is Jesus Christ. I've always liked this bit of spirited advice that Martin Luther gave. (laughs) I'll try It's hard to say it without crying. So... When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? 
For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Here's how. Here's how we might put on the breastplate of righteousness when the devil comes to us with those lies we've been talking about. When he comes to us and says a real Christian would never struggle with lust like you do, we say, I, I trust Christ and him alone. I struggle with a great many sins, but Jesus has died and I am forgiven and I have been declared righteous. This is how we stand to fight the devil and put on the breastplate of righteousness. When he comes and says, you should feel worse for that angry outburst than you do. You can say, probably so. But how bad I feel does not justify me. My feelings are fickle. My Savior is not. He died and rose again for my justification. This is how we stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. When he comes and says, you are so dirty and broken, there is no helping you. You can say, I am dirty and broken, but Jesus is pure and he is not broken. I trust him. I trust in him. Therefore, he has pledged himself to me. He will always help me. He will never abandon me. This is how we stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. When the devil comes and says, righteous before God, you're a complete loser. You can say, yeah, there are times I'm a loser, but Jesus is not. He died and won the day by conquering the grave for me. Now I am judged not by my actions, but by his. This is how we stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. When he comes and says, you should love God more and serve him more, you are not enough. We can say, exactly right. But I have not been saved by how much I serve him or how much I love him. I have been saved by what Jesus has done for me. He could not have loved God more, and yet he was killed so that I might live. I am not enough. He is today, tomorrow, and forever. This is how we stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. When he comes and says, you should just give up. Your love for money, reputation, leisure is greater than your love for God. You can say, I do love many things too much. But Jesus could not love me more. And it's not about how much I love him. It's about how much he loves me. He is committed to me and he loves me and he will never leave me. This is how we stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. It's no good, friends, strapping on the breastplate of condemnation or self-righteousness or trusting yourself. I'll do better. No, you won't. Do you know yourself? I know myself. See, this is the strategy he uses for those of us who are tempted toward self-reproach. It's the strategy of accusation which leads to condemnation. He also has a strategy that he uses against those of us who struggle with self-confidence, self-righteousness. So he comes and he says, you can disobey. Ask forgiveness later. Adultery isn't that bad. Your wife, she's your spouse, your wife, your husband. She's been, he's been distant for a while. Things like that. Now in those moments... We can tempt, be tempted to put on a different kind of righteousness. When we hear those things, we could think, well, I'm about to sin, but I feel okay. 
I'm fine. You know what? If I do this, it's not as if lightning is going to strike me from heaven. I'm sincere. I'm still a good person. I'm nice. It can't be all bad if there are good people I know who are living this way or thinking this way. I even cried a few weeks ago when I heard a worship song. That means I'm okay. A lot of people, even experts, they believe, they agree with me. No, friends. No, no, no. Those are all distortions of grace. We must stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Our righteousness before God is not now or ever based on how we feel or what seems right to our culture in any given cultural time or moment. We all have tons of ability to convince ourselves that we are okay based on our own measurement of righteousness and not based on Him. We are righteous before God. Not because we feel good about our decisions or because we're being true to ourselves, but because of Jesus Christ. Because He is our righteousness. He is the reason we are righteous before this all-righteous, all-holy God. And when the devil comes and tries to make you feel self-satisfied, we must not be, we cannot trust our own selves. We can't trust our own thinking always. We can't trust the way things feel. If we trust the way things feel, we will wander away. The point is, we must look away from ourselves and look to another. See, in our day, Distortions of grace are rampant. There are people who say that the teaching of justification by faith, what we've been talking about all up until now, that's so dangerous because people will live however they want to live and morals don't count anymore. People who say that do not understand who Jesus is. They don't understand the gospel. And they don't understand that those who have received the, the righteousness of Christ are changed forever. And they will not, cannot, ever live in the old patterns of life that once dominated their lives. The devil wants us to believe in all these many distortions of grace. I've appreciated the advice from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, his, the way he describes the distortions of grace, is cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Such grace is costly because it causes us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is, it is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man all, the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were, brought up, you were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Why? So that we might be able to be declared righteous and protected and eternally secure. So when the devil comes to whisper these distortions of grace, how do we respond? 
When he comes and says, you can disobey. It doesn't matter. Do what you want. You can ask forgiveness later. How do we respond? No, when I do that, I get a hard heart. If I keep going down this path, I may not come to my senses and recognize this is wrong. I must not trample on my Jesus or sin so that grace abounds. It does not. Jesus, my righteousness, calls me to follow him. Friends, we must stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. When we hear the devil say, adultery isn't that bad, your spouse has been distant a while. No, no, no. We say, my Lord does not promise a great marriage. Maybe my spouse has been distant, but my Lord has not abandoned me. He did not abandon me. Even when I was distant from him, he came looking for me. We must stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. When the devil comes and says, you deserve to get angry, they all should respect you more. No, no, no. We say, I deserve death and hell. Jesus, my righteousness bids me to come and die to my preferences so that I can find my life in him. This is how we stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. When he comes and says, you really need to be true to how you feel. No matter what the Bible says, no, no, no. I must be true to my Jesus, the one who is my righteousness and his words. My feelings, they lie. They're unreliable, but my Jesus is not. We must stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. God is love, the devil whispers. That means you can do whatever you want. No. No. God does love me, but that means he bought me with a price. Jesus, my righteousness, died. And that's how he shows his love to me. Not by letting me do whatever I want. We must stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. You deserve what, to get what you want, the devil says, always. No, 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 we say, I deserve much worse. But I've been given the very righteousness of Christ. His standing before God is now mine. I will follow him. Stand. This is how we stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. So whether you are tempted towards self-righteousness or self-reproach, Jesus invites us to stand and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Self-righteousness. It's easy to lapse into legalism on the one hand or licentiousness on the other. Both. 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 Harm your soul and our repudiation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both are deadly. And we must stand. And to be able to stand, we must fight by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. You know my overall goal for this series? That at the end of this series, the devil's more discouraged than he is today. I want him to think, man, Center Church, I mean, they're not that impressive. They don't have a lot of money. And they're led by that gray-haired fool they're weaker than they think. They're more vulnerable than they know. And yet, I should be pounding them into the ground. 
and he hasn't. Why? Is that because we're smart? Is that because we have great strategies? Is that because we know better than everybody else? No. Why is it? Why? Because we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there is no other place to stand. There is no other, there is no other rock for us to stand on. So I want the devil to think of us and go, they're nothing but their Savior, that Jesus. They're tied to him. They're fixed on him. And when I think of Center Church, I'm discouraged. I'm discouraged. I hope he's discouraged. I hope we go forth and make the devil discouraged. See, we have a champion. And our champion, Jesus Christ, has fought for us has given us everything. We are now in him and have his righteousness. And may we stand in the good of that and fight the devil by putting on the breastplate of righteousness day by day. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your patience, your long-suffering, attitude toward us. Thank you for declaring us righteous even though we're not. Thank you for giving us hope even when we by all rights should have none. Thank you for protecting us against the devil, Lord, and I pray that you would help us all to stand and fight the devil. I pray, Lord, as we, that we would arm ourselves with your righteousness so that we can say no both to, to self-righteousness and self-reproach so that we can say no both to legalism and licentiousness, so that we can say no to, those, to, to, to going our own way or trusting ourselves, but instead let us say yes to you, Jesus. Let us, let us remind ourselves that the ground of our salvation is not in anything that we have done or could do or might one day be able to do, but only in you. And so, Lord, we are strong only as long as we fix ourselves on you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do just that, fastening each week, each day, the breastplate of righteousness on, and help us to sally forth into battle and stand. Whether it be accusations that would lead to condemnation or distortions of grace, either way, help us to stand in the strength that you provide. I pray for here, anyone here who's not following you and are not in this army. I pray that they would see their great vulnerability and the great danger that they're in. They're in great peril. I pray that they wouldn't just let this wash over them and walk away and go off into their week and month. But I pray that they would take great concern for their souls so that they might be able to call Jesus their, theirs as well. Jesus, it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.